Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 263. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Now, I had mentioned last week that the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was sort of required reading when I was a kid in school. I don't think I said this last week. If I did, forgive me for repeating myself. I didn't read any of the other books after that. I didn't read the books. I didn't see the films. So I am going into this and the next film on a complete blind. My only expectations that I have and all that I know about them are based on what you have told me previously. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the only book that I read, and I don't believe we mentioned this last week either. There are seven of them, and actually, Disney wasn't sure that this was the one that they were going to roll with next, but they realized that in order to do the third one, um, they had to introduce Prince Caspian, otherwise he was going to come up as just this random character, and they needed to develop him now in order to get to the third one. Um and we're going to talk, too, about why they only ended up doing this as a trilogy instead of adapting all seven. Because I think at this point, the idea was that they were going to go up against Harry Potter, being that it had seven books, which they turned into eight films. I don't think that that's how this started. I think they really did just want to do an adaptation of the Chronicles of Narnia. But once they realized what they had and the popularity of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they decided that this was going to be the competitor for Harry Potter. Um, I did see this one in movie theaters. I remember it very specifically because it came out on May 16th of 2008, which was two days before my college graduation. So this was one of the last group activities that I did with my group of college friends. Uh, so you can well imagine that you know, the six or seven of us that were about to graduate film school feeling all, you know, high and mighty were ripping this apart, particularly over the CGI. Um, so that's my memory of it. And I didn't continue. I, I don't think that I ended up seeing the third one because I disliked this so much. Um, but it was really because of the bad CGI. Otherwise, I really don't have too much of a memory of it. Well, was that a proper send-off for you and all of your college friends did they need to do a Prince Caspian film, or would they have been best served just skipping it and introducing him as a random character? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. Caspian is a Telmarine prince awoken by Dr. Cornelius to learn that his aunt has given birth to a child and that his life is now in danger. Caspian is given Queen Susan's magical horn, which he is to use if he is ever in need. This is nearly 1,300 years after the Pevensies left Narnia, and Caspian knows 
that his uncle Miraz would kill him to become the king. After falling from his horse and encountering two dwarves while troops close in on him in the forest, he sounds the horn. In England, it has been one year since the Pevensies have left Narnia. The kids are struggling being away from Narnia, and as they wait for their train to take them to school, the station opens up and brings them back. They see that their former castle has been destroyed over the years. Meanwhile, Trumpkin, a dwarf who helped Caspian, has been captured, gagged, and bound by Miraz. As he is to uh, as he is to be drowned at sea, the Pevensies arrive to save him. And he seems less than thrilled to have been saved, and even less so to learn that the Pevensies are the kings and queens of old, until Edmund defeats him in a sword fight and learns that the horn was blown. Caspian awakens to take on his uncle when Nickabrick and Truffle Hunter tell him of the horn that he has blown, because he didn't know exactly what it was. Trumpkin tells the Pevensies of how the Narnians retreated into the woods for hiding and that Aslan hasn't been seen since Miraz invaded. Meanwhile, uh, they are walking towards the dancing lawn and Caspian encounters the former Narnians as well as a mouse named Reepicheep. He tells the Narnians that he is the prince and that he needs their help to retake the throne and rule as king and bring peace to the kingdoms. Lucy and the rest, meanwhile, try to find Aslan, but instead find Caspian. And the Narnians, while Miraz and Lord Sopaspian, Sopaspian, that got the whole time I was writing this down. I was like, I'm going to butcher this guy's name. Uh, They gather their troops for battles. The Pevensies and Caspian find... Aslan's underground hall built over the stone table. Peter and Caspian disagree on how to deal with the king and his men, while Lucy believes that they should wait for Aslan, which Peter objects to. The Narnians sneak attack the king's guards as they infiltrate his fortress, where Caspian frees a captured Cornelius, who tells Caspian that Miraz killed his father. Caspian confronts him in it, and Miraz admits to the crime before the queen shoots Caspian with a crossbow. A bell tolls, bringing more troops to the castle. Susan calls for a retreat, but Peter refuses. This decision leads to the death of dozens of Narnians, although Caspian and the Pevensies escape with half of their troops. However, tensions between Peter and Caspian boil over. Surrounding kingdoms pledge their troops as Miraz grows a tremendous armed presence. Nicobrick tells Caspian of a way to get the throne and introduces him to a werewolf and an old hag who uses black magic to summon the White Witch, who tells him a drop of his blood will set her free. However, Edmund breaks the ice wall that she is stuck behind while Nicobrick is killed by Trumpkin. Lucy, meanwhile, continues to wait for Aslan to return. Peter challenges Miraz to a duel and wounds him. He gives Caspian the chance to kill him. However, he opts not to and says that he plans to return Narnia to its people. Sapician double-crosses Miraz, stabbing him with an arrow, blaming it on the Narnians, and reigniting the battle. Lucy eventually finds Aslan in the woods and awakens the trees. The forest attacks the Telmarines, and a river god washes away most of them, including the double-crossing lord, uh, Sepesian. Any remaining 
troops surrender to the Narnians. Caspian becomes the king and brings peace to the kingdoms. Aslan informs Peter and Susan that they have learned all that they can and will never return to Narnia. However, Ed, uh, Edmund and Lucy may return. Susan kisses Caspian goodbye as the Pevensies return to England. Oh, my Lord. I can't believe the name is what tripped you up and not anything that Walt was doing. I, I have to be honest with you. The <laughs> dog distracting me, climbing all over me, was the second worst thing about reading that plot. <laughs> the worst thing about reading that plot was reading that plot. Well, he's got his ball now, so I think we should be okay for the rest of our review. Let's hope. Um, well, I think that this is a good place. This is a good jumping off point for kind of my review of this film in totality. And I'm trying not to repeat myself over and over again. But the, but the problems with this movie start at the very beginning of this movie. The introduction is confusing if you don't Bingo. know the original story. I don't know who any of these characters are. We are not properly introduced to any of these characters for a movie that has an obscene running time. There is no room to breathe in certain areas. I'm okay that we are starting in a place where we don't know any of the characters and that it's a reset, but you are absolutely right. We need more context because by the time we learn that a new male heir is a threat, we don't know why Caspian needs to escape because we don't know what the relationship is. Once you learn that Moraz is his uncle... And his uncle wants the throne and that this is essentially the Lion King or Hamlet or however you want to look at it. It all clicks into place. But they hold that information for way too long. Not to mention this is all very fast paced, which is good. It works. But the way that they slam zoom into this castle from the jump, it just takes off before we really have a chance to catch up. And then the irony is that the rest of this film could use about a half hour trimmed out of it, which is kind of what we said last week. These films tend to drag in the battle sequences. And this one, I feel like, feels it even more than Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's this. I'm going to jump to the very end of the movie. Why did the queen need to give birth to a son for his uncle to kill him in a power struggle? That baby that was born serves no purpose in this movie. Because it's never his cousin that he's in a power struggle with. It's his uncle. This baby did not need to be born for his uncle to want to be the king the minute he killed his father. Right. I mean, that's the thing. That's always been Mraz's motivation is that he wants the throne. But I think that having the baby was a catalyst because now you have a new bloodline. He couldn't kill the prince with no bloodline following. Then, Reaching? It's a, it's a total reach. Then why do it to begin with? Yeah, Scar didn't care. Exactly. Although apparently Scar kind of had a whole other bloodline on the other side of the pride, but we're not going to talk about that. Let's let's get a, a, into into England for a moment too. So now we see the Pevensies. They're at the train station. Peter's in a fist fight. This is how much I forgot about this movie. I would have put money that this was Edmund fighting. 
Well, it makes no sense that it isn't. It makes no sense that it's Peter. I thought that on first viewing, but when I sat down to take my notes, it actually does make a lot of sense. And I really like that they're showing how much of a struggle these kids are having getting back to reality. Because, you know, we talked about it last week at the end of the last film. They show the time jump. They show that the kids have grown up in Narnia and they've forgotten their past life. So I like that, you know, it shows that these kids are mature, that they want to go back. They could have this great life in Narnia. They do have this great, great life in Narnia, but they do choose to go back and, what would have been really nice was to show the payoff on that. Presumably they went back for their mother and father who was fighting the war if he's still alive. But we don't see any of that play out. We don't no. see the reason that they wanted to go back. So I like that now they have this knowledge of these, this great accomplishment that they've achieved. They've won a war. They've grown. They have all this maturity but now it, it's like they're too big for their bodies going back to this setting. So I like that Peter is acting out of character because he doesn't really know what to do. I wish that they would have planted it a little bit better early on because I think the payoff on that later would have been better received. But I'm not going to get into that right now because I don't want to do what this movie does and jump all over the place. Uh, very quickly get them back into Narnia, right? The train station opens up. Boom, there we are. You mean opens up at that sign that says way out? Yeah. Foreshadow, foreshadow, five shadow? Yeah, exactly. Um, I do like that they address the time jump right away because it sort of flips on itself again that now everything that they did know about Narnia and every one that they knew is gone. Correct. Now, in the meantime, Caspian has been protected by Trumpkin. Trumpkin has now been uh, captured by the Telmarines. He's not cooperating with answering their questions. He's taken out on a canoe to be drowned at sea. He's rescued by the Pevensies and seems disappointed to have been rescued at all. It almost it was like he wanted to be executed. And then he's even more upset to find out that the lore, the folklore that was the Pevensies, the old stories, he's disappointed when they show up. I actually kind of like that, too, because his attitude is these are the great kings and queens of old. You you saved Narnia. And it's a bunch of kids, you know, to to from Trumpkin's POV. It's like pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz. Their reputation preceded him, and now that he sees what they are, they are he's disappointed. And he does have a right to be, because Narnia has not only fallen to you-know-what, they've just fallen, period. They are literally, Narnians are literally living underground. And I really love how that's also used for the villain setup here, because Miraz is spinning everything to blame the Narnians. He's blaming these rumors that there are Narnians still in existence and Caspian's disappearance is their fault. Caspian, who does a very poor job of playing hide and seek, by the way. <laughs> when he is hiding behind that wall, when Truffle Hunter 
and the other dwarf were having their conversation. He's supposed to be hiding and listening. I mean, he literally is like peeking out from behind the wall. How nobody sees them, I can't understand. And it's, it's, I don't think it's bad cinematography because you could have just as easily shown as they did the shot of him from the other side of the wall listening in, believing that he's about to be killed, turned in, whatever. It's one of many absurdities, many absurdities that happen throughout this film and it happens very early on. Now, if it seems like I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, that's because that's what the movie does. It does. This movie is all over the place. The characters are not only in different locations, but I feel like mentally and in dialogue, they're here, there, and everywhere. There's almost no consistency. We have new characters that come on screen. We don't know any of their names. They don't even get introduced. to. I cannot tell yeah. you how many times. The reason why Caspian and then Peter went and had an argument where Caspian told Peter this. So Peter did that. The reason why I was so specific when breaking down the plot is because if I explained it to you the way that it was sort of being explained to us, he hit him. So he got mad and then he stormed off to find her. That was how this movie was playing out because we are seeing characters. We don't know who they are. I had my phone. This isn't an exaggeration. 90% battery at the start of this movie. It now has 3% of the battery left. That's how many times I had to go into the plot written online, into IMDb. I didn't know who any of these characters were. There was a point where I was going to ask you if you wanted to do this linearly because it was so convoluted. But I feel like if we did it that way, this episode is going to be as long as the runtime of this film. I refuse. I feel like they do a good job of cutting back from the A and B story and bringing them together. But you're right. It's just without developing these characters. Um it becomes very confusing, especially because Caspian is barely developed. You know, he's set up as the victim in this movie. And we know that the professor seems like sort of his all-knowing mentor. But because they're separated, we really don't know enough about Caspian to trust him. Because there are points where he doesn't seem trustworthy, like this scene that you're talking about. And I think that's also part of the, why it feels confusing in the way it was shot. Because the way that he's looming over... The Badger, we know these as Narnians. We're happy to see them as the audience. We should be, that they, they've not been completely wiped out. So we're rooting for them, but now he seems foreboding, and we don't know if he's on the side yet that wants to take them out or not. So there's a point where Caspian almost becomes the antagonist, and we need more to go on if we're going to believe otherwise that he is in fact trying to help the greater good because they lose, they sort of lose the fact, you know what it is? I'm, and I'm only realizing this as we're talking through, we don't get enough of a reaction from Caspian when he's on the run, how he feels about his uncle. We get the information from the professor. We get Miraz sending out, people to make sure that Caspian is gone 
but we don't ever get that beat with Caspian as to how he feels about being chased out of the castle until it dawns on him that his uncle killed his father. It comes way, way too late. The other thing is, I feel like the characters in the film are fleshing things out while we're watching other scenes. So in other words, we don't know that they're fleshing anything out. Yes, like the B story is fleshing out the A stuff and vice versa. And we should be, that's the thing. For a film that's supposed to be very much character driven, we're not getting enough POV from the characters until much later on. There was a, about halfway through the first time I watched this film. Do you know I didn't know which one was Miraz and which one was Saprician? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or so, Sopispian. Sopispian is his name. I'm going to butcher it the whole time. I didn't know which one was which. I literally had to look it up to see which one was which because I didn't know who was who. Yeah, same. Um, speaking of characters, for as much as they are ripping off Harry Potter here... Um, and I don't mean source material wise, I mean in set design and costuming. Um, the professor is a really great character. I almost don't mind how much he feels like Dumbledore to me. I would have just really loved confirmation that this is the professor from the first film that has found a way into Narnia. I don't know if that's the case. I honestly don't know the source material enough to draw that connection, but I would have loved if we as the audience here got the wink and the nod that it is, in fact, the professor. I don't think that it is. I think it's two completely separate characters. I think so, too, but I would have liked that tie, tie-in. Um, in the meantime, we all find each other. The, Pe- the Pevensies find Caspian and the Narnians. Um and there we are i i feel like ian malcolm there and there we are <laughs> like we just find each other and now we end up at aslan's toe the underground cavern now i think that that sets incredible with the broken stone table but we spend way too much time this this is this is i think the the through line throughout the entire movie you drag out nonsense to rush through things that we should focus more time on yes if it seems like we're rushing into well and then we found each other and now here we are that's because that's how it plays out in the film right but there is some good character work happening here because i love how edmund eats crow when lucy thinks that she saw aslan And he's like, you know, the last time I didn't believe her, this didn't go so well for me. So I thought that that was a really good line. And I like that now we at least have Lucy's journey set that she is going to go track him down. Um, There's also another really good line from Caspian in here uh, when they do come together. And he says, whether the horn is magical or not, it brought us together. So this is where we get a little bit more definition on whether we can trust him or not. Where this got very confusing for me um, was the slab because I couldn't tell if it was another one, if they had built this temple around it, because I was like, why would they do that when this was the white witch's slab where right. she was about to make the or where she did make this sacrifice? Did we just build this whole temple around? It's plausible with the timeline that we're working with that they would have had the time to do that. 
But I would have liked more clarity if they were, in fact, hiding out in her at her altar, which you could make the argument that that is the case because they bring her back later. They have her um, her staff. So it very well could be that they're on their on her ground. The only sort of clarification that we do get is Lucy says Aslan must know what he's doing. So I feel like the implication here is that he sacrificed himself again, which leads me to believe that it is a new slab. Another question that is not answered in this movie. Maybe it gets answered in the next one, but I shouldn't have to wait for the next one to get that question answered. It does set up a good conflict, though, because Lucy still has her childlike innocence and her faith. But Susan is sort of feeling caught in the middle here of what her place is um, because she's having trouble accepting that they are back. All she wanted to do once they got back to England was come back to Narnia. And now that they are, things aren't what they're cracked up to be in her mind. So I like that there's a little bit of a um, butting heads with the sisters here. That is confusing and out of nowhere. Everybody but Lucy losing faith in Aslan comes out of nowhere, completely unmotivated. Am I am I to believe that the other kids have given up on believing in Aslan because Aslan let Narnia fall to crap for 1300 years? Using the same logic, so did you. So like what what is it? What has happened that has led them to believe because everything that they encountered, everything that they did with Aslan in the first film paid off. He never didn't pay it off. He never broke a promise. He never uh, he he never didn't live up to his reputation or their expectations of him. So this whole thing that they're they're just dis you know, they're kind of like disillusioned with him seems like it came out of nowhere doesn't really get explained. Well, I think it's actually one of the bigger themes of the film because we talked last week about all the parallels of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe to the Bible. So if that's still holding true here, I think this is all about testing your own faith because even Lucy questions it. But to your point, that wasn't really made clear until later on when she does finally interact with Aslan and she runs up to him and she says, I knew it was you all along. The others didn't believe me. And he says, well, then why didn't you come and find me? And she says something to the effect of, you know, we, we weren't a hundred percent sure. And he says, that's why you should have come. You should have believed you should have known that I would have been here for you. And I mean, if that's not, you know, Christianity I don't know what is but it's coming on the heels of a statement where Edmund says hey the last time I didn't listen to her it didn't turn out so well for me do you see where there's there's so much inconsistency here instead what we've done is we have wasted time dragging out plots that go nowhere developing a Prince Caspian that none of us care about trying to develop a a king Miraz that not only do none of us care about but is not intimidating. There's nothing about him that's intimidating, scary, or diabolical. He killed his own brother. Okay, yeah, we've seen that. 
but because he wants to be the king. Right. We've seen that. It, th this is this entire thing is lather, rinse, repeat. And either the book is horrifically written and they're going off of a poorly written book or they completely jumped the shark with this, which is what I'm led to believe because apparently people who love the book series despise this film because it's a complete change from where they were in the book series. So like, if you have all this rich source material and you insist on having a two and a half hour runtime, which you don't, but you'll claim that you do, flesh that out. Make us care about some of these characters. Well, I think that's it because this is where we do start to see a little bit of a shift because like I said, Lucy has her her arc, which is going to find Aslan and testing her faith. Peter, we're going to see his arc because he's very much conflicted over this war. And I think that that's where it feels like the plot sort of thins out because really Caspian is a plot point for Peter's story. And, and Peter deciding how hard he wants to go for Narnia and what he's willing to give up. I think what you really needed was to give Susan and Edmund a bit more to bite into. You gave Susan a little bit more to do um, as far as the fighting and the action sequences because that's what the actress wanted. And they actually rewrote the script so that she was using the bow more and she had more to do as far as the fights and less damsel in distress. And okay, that's great. Um, but you don't really lean into this conflict with Lucy because... Once Lucy goes out or she says she's going to go out on her own, Susan goes to protect her. But we don't find out really if Susan is doing this because she believes that Aslan is truly there or because she doesn't. And she just wants to make sure nothing actually happens to Lucy. Um, you do eventually get to that point where Susan realizes she has to stop Miraz's men from from pursuing them. And she says to Lucy, you're going to have to do the rest on your own. But that's about where it stops for Susan because they dip their toe in the water with this conflict of she wanted to come back. Now she's back and she doesn't know what to do. We don't really see that come full circle. And Edmund, same thing. He's fighting more, but his role in this film is Peter, you better come quickly. Yep. There's nothing else, nothing. And how interesting would it have been to see what happens with him when the white witch comes back? Like it would have been interesting to see. Him. Well, no, I actually, I take that back because it's more interesting to see Peter tempted by what you could sort of uh, compare to him being tempted by the devil, I think is the analogy here. But Edmund is actually the one to break the the glass or the ice that the the white witch is in because he doesn't want to deal with that anymore so that's that is his one defining moment but that's all we get and we need more yeah and we'll we'll talk about that in a few more minutes um because uh we're all together because yep we're together and now we're going to infiltrate the castle because it's time to do that this is reminiscent of robin hood to me the way that the animals are carrying uh, the siblings in, um, the cat getting tied up. I think that's hilarious. A mouse slits a guy's throat. It's incredible. Well, 
if you remember from the first one, the mice do have favor because they're the ones who broke the bounds off of Aslan. And there's actually, it's a great callback. The way that that cat is tied up, it's kind of ironic. The mice are the ones who tied the cat up, but he is in sort of that same position that Aslan was in. But Aslan sort of blessed the mice because they helped him. So that's why, even though this running joke of, yes, I know I'm a mouse, gets completely tired after the first delivery, um, I think they wanted to sort of shine the light on that, that that was part of Aslan's promise. Yeah, I just like the visual of a mouse slitting a guy's throat. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. That's, to me, that's the, honestly, it's one of the best parts of the movie. The way you said that, I didn't think you were buying it at all. In all of the things that they do in this movie, that's the one thing that I think they probably did the best. Which is really funny because the CGI is not that great on these mice. Okay, let's talk about CGI for a second. Let's just get this out of the way. I didn't think the CGI was as bad as it was in the first. And I don't know if it's that it legitimately wasn't as bad as it was in the first. Or if it's because based on what you told me, I set my expectations so horrendously low that they almost couldn't be met. You know what I think it is? And I I hate to even say it. At the time... It looked bad because VFX were so good. I think that in the years since, we've seen what really bad CGI is. And we've seen it get so much worse comparatively. This isn't so bad anymore. Let's talk about the moment where Caspian goes into the king and queen's bedroom and holds a sword up to his uncle's throat. And his uncle, in front of the queen, admits to killing his own brother, which is a shock to her because she didn't know that he had killed his own brother. This is terrible because she's just like, I thought you said that. Come on. How about it was that much of a coincidence, lady? How about the fact that she's got a crossbow aimed at Caspian? who just got his uncle to admit to high treason and her uncle and his uncle goes he's a threat to our child and she goes ha and shoots and shoots Caspian i mean she... you 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 just watched your husband admit to killing his own brother for the throne and you shoot the innocent party well she lowered the bow when she learned that I think she was ready to flip on him. And then when he pointed out, we have a child now. It's not about the throne for her. It's about protecting her child. She knows her husband is off his rocker and that he's the villain in this. But she's afraid about the threat that this poses to her newborn. Um, the newborn, the new, the the newborn with no purpose, by the way. We still don't have a purpose for this. I'm going to die on that hill. Plot device. But where I think this scene is actually good is that Caspian is such a great foil for Peter because when this is about to go south, Peter and Susan come bursting in the room because they know that Caspian's not going to stick to the plan because he's got too much unfinished business here. So this battle could have gone a lot differently, but Peter was too busy babysitting Caspian. 
I want to talk about something that is really well done and comes far too late. This should have been something that was introduced in the beginning, going back to what we had mentioned. Going back to the fist fight in the train station before they go to school. And we assume that it's Edmund that's in the fist fight. Turns out to be Peter. Because Peter's struggling with not being in Narnia. It's at that moment that you should have introduced the idea that Peter, other than struggling with not being a king in Narnia, is struggling with the reality that he didn't kill the White Witch, that Aslan killed the White Witch. Because he does get called on it, you are right. They bury it way too late in this film. That should have been something that got planted early on. It should have been something that was eating at him the entire time because it would have justified every decision that he made. It would have justified him rushing into decisions. Mm-hmm. It would have justified him not having faith in Aslan. Mm-hmm. It would have... Him, the desire to step out of Aslan's shadow works, but they should have introduced it at the very beginning of the movie. Especially because it does come up later on when he's fighting Miraz of you don't have what it takes to be king. Like... Now you have to start making hard decisions. You don't want to kill someone. You don't want to take a life, but you have to if if your leadership role and your ipso facto power means that much to you, like it would have been a great internal struggle with Peter or a great conflict between the brothers because this time Edmund is just his lapdog. And honestly, on a personal level though, I like this look for Edmund. Humble yourself. He was such a brat in the first one i'm kind of glad that he is taking orders this time around but it would have been a very interesting story um where i think we do get the payoff here though uh this gate closing scene is devastating um where peter calls for the retreat and everyone is ready to bounce and this boar yak whatever is, is holding up the gate so that everyone can get out and all of your mains make it out, um, except for a couple who you see. I mean, this thing just closes. Um, and this is a big moment for Peter because he has to decide if he's going to stay and save them or leave them behind. And this is where you do see him act in his own self-interest. I mean, yes, he does. He, he is acting in the interest of saving as many people as he can. But I feel like the Peter of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe would have gone back for them. And this Peter turns his back and then blames it on Caspian. Yeah, and we get this bickering between the two of them, and that drags out for way too long. My question is, why wasn't Lucy there with the drops? She's literally sitting on the broken slab. And you, I don't want to hear, not not from you, that's, that's not at you, but I, I don't want the, the reason behind it to be, well, she was too young to be there. She was in the battles in the first one. No, I don't buy it. She was on the battlegrounds. You could have had her, Edmund didn't really fight a lot in this one either. He was up keeping watch. You could have had her with him. And then when it was time, run down with the drops. Yeah, you have a magical elixir that literally could have brought all of these people back. No, and instead, you, you, Peter led them to slaughter. But I think you also do need that for Peter's story here. You need it for Peter's story. And I suppose that at the end of the day, that was the last lesson that he is to learn in Narnia. And that's why he can never return. But instead, we get more bickering. 
we have a very quick scene where the other kingdoms are pledging their troops to uh, to the king, which, fine, you need to see it because you need to see him build his army. But it seems like they spent way too much time. Why not just get to the point where we have the, the old hag and the white witch? Like, why, why was that the one thing that seemed like you rushed to through mm. to, you rushed through that you drug your feet to get to that point to rush through it because she's like give me a drop of blood no i'm gone yeah why wasn't she there tempting him for far longer where's the internal struggle for caspian i also go back and forth on the placement of that scene because it would have been interesting had it come before and Peter declined and then he had that moment of maybe I should have teamed up with her and you get this story of or or you know you get that shift into the enemy of the enemy is my friend um but I do like the placement after the fact because he has learned a hard lesson he lost people in battle and he does consider it like do I actually team up with her to save Narnia because her, her pitch is pretty convincing he she says you know you can't do this without me and he has just learned that is that he's in way over his head it could have been a moment where she's barbosa right bring him back i'm glad that they didn't i mean i suppose we're going to see her in the third film that's just a guess um it, it to me it, it's i don't even care that they don't bring her back as much as i do the pacing pacing the pacing the pacing the pacing the pacing no, and I feel like they also could have leaned into it a little bit differently here because Nickabrick is for Narnia. He just has a different way of going about this. And I mean, that's the other thing. Nickabrick, I believe, is a descendant of, um, is it Ginnabrick, yes. her driver from yes, the first one? Yes, So I know that because I had to look all of these characters up because I didn't know who any of them were. Yeah, his... His motivations aren't exactly patriotism for Narnia. He he knows that if Narnia comes back, so will she. And I wish that they had leaned into that a little bit more. Because and, there's this yeah. other... Then you have like another, oppose, a, another threat of an opposing force. And it would have been a better conflict, I think, than just seeing... It would have been a good sea story that she's still looming back there somewhere as opposed to this A and B story conflict dragging on. Yeah, and I think that that would have been a reasonable double cross. Um, instead, we get the Sopispian double cross, which is okay... Because this is after Peter challenges Mraz to the duel in a, in a scene that's way too long, like most of them are. I do have a couple of thoughts on that, though, because there, again, is a lot of character work happening in here. Um, I like that Edmund was the one sent to negotiate this battle, um, and that Mraz in this scene also gets called out by his own men um, because Mraz is saying, you know, you guys are going to lose anyway. Why don't you just back down? And Edmund calls him out and he's like, well, you could back down and, and we can avoid this whole thing. And then his men sort of double down on it with the reverse psychology of you're not going to go fight this kid. There's no reason to. And he's like, no, 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 no. 
I never said I wasn't going to go fight. And then he does it. Um, I like that he exposes that he still plans to cheat um, because he doesn't have a lot of faith in himself. And, and he tells his guys, you know, if this starts going poorly, just take him out with one of the bows. Take Peter out with one of the bows. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with you. This sword fight drags on way, way too long. But I do feel like it is a nice moment for both Peter and Caspian to sort of call a truce here. And for Peter and Edmund, um, because uh, Peter's sort of saying goodbye because he thinks this is going to go south for him. And Edmund's like, no, 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 just tell me after because he has faith in his brother. So you get a nice little beat there. Um, but this is where I feel like it's Peter's biggest conflict because by not killing Mraz, is he trying to do the right thing by giving Caspian the chance to do it? Or is Peter being a coward? We still don't really know. We can't really tell here. My bigger problem is I'm fine with the double cross with Sapician, Sapician, whatever in the hell his name is. It was unexpected because I feel like you did Mraz didn't have their support. I kind of thought that they didn't care one way or the other if Narnia existed or not, and that they just wanted him out. Um, so I was kind of surprised when it all turned on Miraz. My thing is, it it kind of seemingly came out of nowhere because it's not like there was a plot against him the whole time. Now that he's dead, who's king? Is it the unnamed son? who serves no purpose in this film? Is it Caspian, who technically speaking is the rightful heir to the throne as he is the next in the bloodline because he should have been the king the entire time and now he's alive? As soon is as it his so father was dead, yeah. Is it Sopispian? Why kill him? Yeah. Why? And how does nobody see in the thousands of people watching this duel, how does nobody see Sapispian just take an arrow out of his back pocket or wherever he pulled it from, his cloak, and stab the supposed king in front of everyone? Well, everyone that was up close saw it. He spun that to the army of Caspian killed the king. Now we have to take out Narnia. The problem is they didn't give Sapispian enough going up to this point because I, I think that's what was most surprising was that he was the one to double cross Miraz. You would think it's the other guy who honestly, whose name I don't even know, the one that lied about how many troops they lost oh, yeah. earlier on. Yeah. You would think, see, see that's the only one where the where it's clear he doesn't trust Miraz and you think he's going to be the w one to overtake him. The fact that it is Sapispian who sort of comes out of nowhere, it does seem unmotivated. And that's exactly what I meant when I said I didn't think the court cared one way or the other. I just thought they wanted him out because they didn't trust him. I never knew that there was actual feelings toward Narnia's survival with, with the rest of them. I want to talk about the aftermath. Everything that happens following the moment with the double cross, this battle scene. And it's unforgiving, brutal runtime. I know 
that I have said this over and over again. And not just with this film, but also in the first film. The runtime is obnoxious. They drag out scenes unnecessarily. Not every battle needs to be epic. Not every fight needs to be drawn out. They are pace killers. And this was before Disney had acquired the MCU, mind you. So it's not like they were trying to do the formulaic thing that they've now tried to do with every single one of their films because it works for Spider-Man and, and Iron Man. Um, and they're trying to use it where it's completely unnecessary. But you could have gotten this battle done in five I'll even give you seven minutes. It's interesting that you bring up the MCU because it never bothers me. Well, I think it's two things. The battles don't seem to drag, but they're also punched up with comedy. And I think that's what sets the MCU apart. Here, these long dragged out battles this is why I don't typically like this genre. And I think that's it. There is no comedy here. There's really no way of trying to break it up. I think they tried to with the mice and having that running joke play out one more time, even though you didn't need it. And I think they also tried to break it up with having this trick strategy with the underground tunnels that I actually thought was really cool because it's something different. It's something we've not really seen before. It tries to give Narnia the upper hand again. And just when you think that they have it, everything obviously falls apart all over again. But that's where, you know, I was surprised that they didn't learn their lesson after the first one. We were pretty harsh on Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe last week for having these dragged out battle sequences. And they're doing it again here. And I kind of feel like they were aware that it was dragging because they did try and change it up. But then you should have just left it there. We didn't need to see this battle rage on. We didn't need to see the hand-to-hand -hand combat so much because you did the, the bit with the tunnels. And they could have cut out of it a lot faster with that. And they just didn't. Well, it's not just the comedy that the MCU does it with. If you look at just calling a few movies to mind right away, the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie, everybody's off doing their thing. They're off in their big battle. Meanwhile, Groot and Rocket are working on the explosive. So while they're fighting, we're watching Groot and Rocket. They're doing their thing in end, uh, in, in Endgame, um, massive battle that... They took 10 years working up to, and all in the meantime, they're trying to get the Infinity Stones. So you, you, you have these big fights going, but there's always someone else inside the fight doing a different thing. In this, it's just fighting. I think, again, that's genre. That's what the MCU has working in its favor is not just the comedy. It's a sci-fi. So you can have somebody doing something techie. And with the MCU in particular, there's also something tangible with these Infinity Stones. With fantasy here, this is over land. So you're not seeing them fight in the same way it's just it's the hand-to-hand -hand combat and that's it there's nothing that they're trying to take from another person there's no scrap uh snatch and grab element 
it it just is what it is. And I, I think that that's just a genre problem, not only specific to this movie. Right, because even in the first Avengers film, they're fighting Loki, but Tony has the bomb and he's flying it back up into the atmosphere. So there's always something and something else. But to your point here, there's nothing else. And I, I think what they try to do is th the problem is this fight is happening and then you're getting taken out of it while Lucy's waiting for Aslan. I was just going to say that too. You didn't do enough cutting back and forth um, because she's just off riding a horse. Susan has already come back right. because she had to clear the path for Lucy. Right. Um, but there's not enough checking in with your B storyline here because there's not enough happening. I mean, that's, that's the other thing. How many times are you going to show Lucy riding the horse? They could have handled this entire sequence differently too. Instead of checking in with Lucy just the one time and letting it play out where the bad guys almost catch up to her and then Aslan saves her and then they have this whole conversation, they could have used that to break up the battle and intercut the two scenes instead of giving Lucy this one long scene. Um, I go back and forth, though, on Aslan stepping in here because... In one regard, it does feel like, hey, nice of you to finally show up. But I really do love this conversation between Aslan and Lucy as far as how it plays into the theme of testing faith. What I don't love is this resolution of the trees are what saves them all. I think the reunion is heartwarming. I'm okay with the trees coming to life. I'm okay with the river god. 20 minutes, get 20 minutes, 20 minutes of runtime off this effing movie. Like I am so, I ha like, that's my problem with it. It is, it, it, it look like visually it looks so good. And I totally buy that this would happen in Narnia. And I totally buy that Aslan would be the one to make all of this happen. I think for a fantasy book, it's how it would have played out in the mind's eye as you're reading it. It didn't need to take as long as it did because, mind you, the trees come to life, start wiping everything out. It's another 10 minutes until the river god gets the rest of them. Right. Well, it's it's an entire location move to get them back to the river. I have never been this angry about a runtime in a movie. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that that's the closest we've ever come to an F-bomb where we have seen worse movies. But I like the point that you bring up about the mind's eye. They're two different mediums. The experience of reading a book is entirely different than that of watching a film. I want the book to last. I want to create the images in my head. I don't mind when things... Well, no, because you can feel when a book is dragging, too. Um, when there's a lot of, you know, exposition that you don't really need. Stephen King's It. There you go. That's a great example. But part of the reason to adapt it into a film is to pace it up a little bit. Yeah, the visual, like, I understand why these fantasy movies get made. Something like this, like a Harry Potter. I, I hate Twilight, 
but even like I can understand money aside because these things are going to make money and as bad as all because all of well no Narnia so far has been okay Harry Potter's unwatchably bad and, and Twilight is completely stupid but I understand money wise why they make them business decision wise but the stories themselves they're so fantastical that I'm fine with the over the top visual. It, but it just takes way, way too long to get through all of that. So to your point, yeah, like you do want to pace it up a little bit. I think the other issue, too, is that all of the character work was in the sword fight. And by the time you got to the big battle, there was nothing left. Correct. And you're sort of over it by then. Yeah. And then that's the biggest problem. You shouldn't be over it before the climax of the film. Right. It, you know, it's what you've waited two and a half hours for. And by the time it happens, you're just happy it's done so that you can leave. Well, I mean, you could argue that the climax is really Miraz's death and this is all part of the fallout afterwards. But there's still you've already ha had the resolution between Peter and Caspian. Um you don't really lean into the romance with Susan until after the battle mm. is over. I got a lot of thoughts. There was a little bit more with personal storylines that they could have sprinkled into the battle and it would have definitely felt like it was moving a little bit faster. Let's talk about the end of the film. We learn that Susan and Peter will not be returning to Narnia because... They've learned all that they can from Narnia. But have they? I find it hard to believe that they've learned everything that they can because Peter, yes, he has a moment where he learns the destruction that stubbornness can bring and the inability to work with others, listen to others. What did Susan do? What did Susan learn? That she knows everything now. Because they completely lost her um, maternal instinct that she had in the first one. And now, romance. Where does this romance come from? Where does this kiss come from? In nowhere, nowhere, in two and a half hours of screen time, has this even been teased? I mean, there were a couple of glances toward each other when Susan is falling um, as the temple starts to collapse. Um, Caspian and Peter are standing next to each other and they just kind of look at each other once she lands on her feet and like they breathe a sigh of relief. So I think it's put out there a little bit, but n no more developed than, oh, Pretty girl, cute boy. There's no um, flirtation. There's nothing to bite into. And I mean, it also contradicts how they're trying to change Susan and mature her because instead of having that maternal instinct, she's more of a warrior here. But now you're going to dumb that down with... A romance storyline that pieces, you don't need. Two pieces of dialogue. You have 30 minutes minimum of wasted, useless screen time. You're telling me you couldn't write three lines of dialogue 
somewhere in this film that could have developed a budding romance, it would not have been difficult to do. Or how about this? Since you're so adverse to trimming runtime off of these films, would 45 minutes of additional screen time killed you? Or 45 seconds of additional screen time, would it have killed you? Probably not. At this rate, why the hell not? Just give us three lines of dialogue. I mean, I honestly don't my it would have been nice if there was a little bit more of a build to it and a little bit more of a payoff but at the same time I also kind of feel like you can sort of turn the other way because she's got nothing to lose she knows she's not going to come back she knows this is never going to go anywhere so why not just kiss the guy that she thinks is cute and then move on what bothers me more honestly about the entire thing as far as Susan and Peter not returning. I do like it for this film because of the growing pains aspect and that Lucy and Edmund still have a lot to learn because they're younger. But to me, it sort of negates the entire first film and the entire book of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because number one, Edmund learned his lesson in the first one. So how does he still have much more to go? You're kind of just holding his age against him. But more to the point, we see the four of them stay in Narnia and grow up. And that was the initial conflict and how they set up the entire second movie is that they are mature. They have grown up. They have all this knowledge that they have to take back to their life as children in England So having all of that, you still sent them back and they still had more to learn from Narnia. So why can't they come and go as they please? Yeah, it leaves too many questions. When a movie is this freaking long, I shouldn't have more questions than I have answers. The other thing that really takes me out of it is hearing the song with lyrics like I half expected one of the characters to start singing the way that they bring it in um I know they got Regina Spector for this song which is cool but to me hold it until the end credits um because it took me right out of it another we didn't really talk about this last week um the score I do really love this score I think it was more prominent in this one I would agree my attention was on it a lot more um But I do really like it. Are we ready to move on to our new members of the cast? Yes. All right. I'm not... We're not going to bother rehashing members of the cast that we talked about last week. Uh, So let's talk about Ben Barnes, who plays Prince Caspian. That's fine. Uh, He's good. Like, I, I don't... He didn't blow me away. Um... But he certainly wasn't he wasn't bad either. He just did a good job. I, I find this character to be one dimensional, kind of poorly developed. Uh he's the prince. I, I don't know what else to say. He's a plot device for Peter, really. Peter has a huge arc in this movie and you sacrifice Caspian's character because of it. And I think that's the other thing because you didn't fully develop him. That's why we don't buy this romance enough. I I think it could have been cool. I think this is probably 
a bridge film for Caspian because he's probably going to have a much bigger part in the third film. But that doesn't mean the opportunity should be wasted to develop him here, especially when you bothered to do this movie so that you could give him the proper introduction. You gave him backstory, not an introduction. Sergio Castellito plays King Mraz. I don't care about this villain. I don't care about him. I don't find him intimidating. I don't find him interesting. Let me just say that any criticism I have of the characters is not a criticism of the cast. Because I think that the performances are all very good. But I think that these, again, are boring, one-dimensional not well thought out, not well defined characters. I'm actually going to disagree with you there because I feel like this is sort of the fault of the actor in this case. I think he could have been a lot more of a menacing villain had he given the role more subtlety. Like he's playing the part and smiling at everyone's face, but behind the scenes, we know that he killed his brother because he's after the throne. You know, his wife is so shocked that he killed his brother. We believe it. I would have liked to have have been as shocked as the wife and not seen it coming because he has been like this benevolent leader that stepped in and play it more like Scar. Scar was so nice to Simba. Oh, come on, we'll have a day, come to the gorge. I know that you're having a tough time with your dad. You know, he he could have played up on the Jekyll and Hyde of the character a lot more. And I think that would have gone a long way. Even in Wish, the new Disney film that just came out, the the villain in that, what was it, Magnifico, I think his yes. name was? It, like, even he did it really well. Where yes. people thought he was this wonderful, magical being that cared so much, and behind the scenes, he was completely unhinged. Like, which you know going into it is what he's going to be. Like, they did it really well there. Unhinged is the perfect word. Like, that's what we didn't get to see. If you're power-hungry enough to kill your brother, I need to see that snap in you. Yeah. Damien Alcazar plays Lord Sapispian. Um, yeah, I, I thought the double cross was well done. I, I was very surprised to see it. Um, I, I wish that they would have fleshed it out a little bit more. Pencil in my critique of runtime and misuse of. They could, like, he did a good job. They could have done more. He was fine. He was more menacing than Miraz as far as the actor's performance. Um, because, you know, he was just kind of like laying low, even keel. And that does have to do with the lack of the de of character development. But to me, like that was the snap that I wanted to see from Miraz. Warwick Davis plays Nickabrick. And I actually thought Warwick Davis was really good because you believe that you can trust him. But when he turns around yeah. and he's really trying to help free the White Witch, really well done. I, I really liked with, where they went with this character and, and how he played him. I do, too. And, you know, he can do both both sides of it really well because obviously, you know, he he was cast for Willow. 
but we've also seen him as leprechaun. So you know that he can handle the good and evil. Peter Dinklage. Oh, here we go. He plays Trumpkin. And he plays it so well. I, I'm not going to let it go. I have to address it. How ironic it is to me that Peter Dinklage, the, the man that cost little people their jobs in the live-action remake of Snow White, which I still don't think we're ever going to see, by the way, took this role. So you'll take the role when it's good for you. What else do I need to say? He's extraordinarily talented. I am not denying the man his talent. I just cannot believe the two sides of his mouth that he will speak from. Well, I mean, he has gone on record early on in his career saying that these were the exact types of roles he didn't want to take because he didn't want to be typecast and to his credit he managed to do that but to me this is sort of a sellout move because you took it for the Disney money behind it but not the second time around right now we don't know that he got offered a role in Snow White though I would find it hard to believe that that he he had that much to say yeah I find it hard to believe that he decided to make himself the spokesperson for Snow White and take such a stance on it if he wasn't actually offered the role now to be fair maybe he loved this book series and and wanted to be a part of it but that's where it's like which side are you on today and it seems like it's convenient all that aside i thought he was so great in this yeah he's probably i mean he's probably the best actor in the film well because that's the other thing i mean being typecast aside i don't know that anyone else would have given this role so much gravitas the way that he did and how he softens this character when it comes to the relationship with lucy I loved their bond. I loved all of their scenes together. There wasn't that much dialogue, but there didn't need to be because he was just so stinking good. Final thoughts. I'm going first. (laughs) I think that, as I stated before, I think the performances were very good. I think the makeup was very good. I think the sets were very good. I think the costumes are very good. I think the props are very good. I think that my bar was set so incredibly low the first time that I watched it that it was almost impossible to hit that bar. So I think I probably liked this movie more than I should have the first time around. More times than not, I will dislike a film the first time that we watch it and find redeeming qualities in it the second time around. Mars Needs Moms, Don't Look Under the Bed... These are two examples of movies that I went, oh my God, this is one of the worst films I've ever seen the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, I found so much more that I loved about it. In this case, I watched it the first time, I watched it the second time, and I went, no. 
These are characters I don't care about. This is screen time that's misused. The plot is all over the place. It is, it is as if they said, take the first act, the second act, the third act, separate them into two or three different piles, throw the pages up in the air, and however you put it back together, movie. This is so disjointed, I'm glad to never watch this again. Wow. That's so funny because I had the complete opposite experience (laughs) from you. Um, So we really do try not to talk about these films with each other during the week until we sit in front of the microphone so that our conversation is authentic. But Sean knew that I was pretty much dreading this one. And after our first viewing, um, he had said to me, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's really not that bad. So now (laughs) that we're sitting to do this and it's, it's gone entirely the opposite direction. I'm really surprised. Um, I'm surprised with you. And I think I'm more surprised with myself because in these past two viewings, this film sort of redeemed itself for me. And I'm happy now that I have this memory from college that's not completely tainted with how bad I thought this movie was from the jump. Um, I'm totally on the same page with you the first time I sat to watch it now. And I was like, oh gosh, how am I ever going to get through this again? And I was like dreading sitting down to watch it. Um, Because I agree. I felt like it was convoluted and all over the place. But I think the difference was when I sat to take my notes and I'm paying a lot more attention, I definitely got a lot more out of the characters and themes and started to appreciate it so much more. The secondary characters, they're underdeveloped three ways to Sunday. There's there's no doubt about that. But what I really liked was with our main cast, the four Pavensi siblings, um, how they challenged these characters and how they made them grow just enough because you have to be mindful of the fact that they're still kids. And in the first one, you know, they're traumatized by the war. They're dropped in this foreign land. There's another war and the whole time they're being fed. Well, this is the prophecy. This is supposed to happen with the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And they just kind of roll with it. And really your biggest arc in that one is Edmund here. I really like that. They posed these kids with the challenge of you have all this experience. You had to go back to reality. All you wanted was to get back to Narnia, but Narnia is not going to be the same as how you left it. This is no longer your escape. This is no longer your happy place. It's going to be thrown on its head. So I think that that was a really good place to put these characters in and they push them just enough where I don't feel like they all grew up too fast. Um, And I'm interested to see in the next one, in particular with Peter and Susan, how that's going to play out, how they are going to struggle with not being able to get back Um, and what Lucy and Edmund are going to have to do without them. So I think that they're all in a good place despite the other problems with this film. The biggest thing that it's missing for me though is you went back to England. Where are your parents at? What is happening with your family life? And I hope that that gets answered in the next one. But otherwise, I'm happy this got a little bit of a redemption arc for me. 
we are interested in knowing what you have to say about Prince Caspian. You can let us know on X Instagram and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio, or you can email me directly, monorealradio at gmail.com. So there has been a ban at the Walt Disney World Resort. And in many ways, I'm surprised it took this long for it to happen, um, considering that this is a service that Disney offers whether you can afford it or not is a completely different story. Um, but the tour groups. We're going to talk about tour groups. We have seen, everybody has seen, the third-party tour groups that get walked through Walt Disney World, whether it be the Magic Kingdom or otherwise. And these are third-party companies that charge still a lot of money, but an awful lot less than... Disney would charge for a tour. Well, in October, these third-party companies have started to be approached by sheriffs and Disney security, and they are being trespassed. And for those who don't know what that means, banned from Walt Disney World property. What is going to happen to me if I go to River Country? They are being banned. It is an indefinite ban. However, after one year they may write a letter and plead their case to have their trespass removed and they be allowed back on property. Adam the Woo, very popular YouTuber. This happened to him. He got trespassed for going behind a decoration at the old MGM Studios when you had New York Street or wherever it was that it was called with mm. the backdrops. Streets of America. Streets of America. Come it, on now. And eventually, it but it was ago. the New York background. Eventually, they took away his trespass. They let him back in. Okay, fine. But now you have these third-party tour groups that are being trespassed and they're saying, well, how dare you? This is how I make my money. This is my form of income. No, I... how dare you? Well, some of them are acting in the proper manner and playing by the rules. Then you have others that manipulate the system. And this is why Disney rightfully has started to crack down on this. You have groups coming in that are misusing the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. They're misusing the ability to get lightning lanes when claiming a disability. You have people go in saying that they have irritable bowel syndrome, which you can't argue whether they do or whether they don't. Uh, they're arguing that they have claustrophobia, high anxiety, fear of crowds, which is funny if you're going to Walt Disney World, but you can't deny that they are or are not, you know, stricken with these disabilities. And they, and they don't actually have them, mind you. They're doing it so that they can get lightning lanes that they are then using 
for their tour guests. Yes. And they are manipulating the system. That's why. Not all of them. Okay, it's not all of them. So don't come at me, bro. Um, Calm down. But the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And people... There's a great line from Men in Black that says, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, a person is smart, but people are dumb and irrational. So, like most things, this is why they took away the free t-shirt at Disney if you were dressed inappropriately. Because people would intentionally dress inappropriately to to get get a free Mm t-shirt. You know... When you manipulate the system and enough people do it, there's going to be a fallout. This happens to be the latest one. To me, this should have happened a long time ago, and I'm shocked that they haven't cracked on cracked down on it sooner. I mean, obviously, there were more pressing matters with the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, this, this was long overdue because my question was always... Where is the information coming from? A lot of these tour guides are not really reputable. They're gathering their information online. It's not well researched. It's not well thought out. Um, And that was always my question was, what does Disney think of this false information being spewed? Because there's already so much of it online and there's no possible way to take it down or even to track it really. So I was always kind of wary of they know that this is happening because you see these groups, you see that they're not in the, um, you know, the VIP tour guide, the plaid, plaid, yeah, you know, but you can see they are hosting and talking a bunch, talking to a bunch of people. So I was like, I, I was always kind of wondering how is it that Disney knows, but they're not doing anything? And it's unfortunate to me that their reasoning is not so altruistic as far as the spread of false information. It is as it pertains to violating the ADA Act. Absolutely. So I'm glad that that's being addressed now and people aren't abusing the system and taking the place of someone that does really need it. But what this does really come down to is the almighty dollar. They're doing it because these tour groups are costing them money. People are booking through the tour groups at a discounted rate and not booking through Disney. But to me, I would want the Disney tour. Isn't that the point of doing it to learn the information as they are presenting it to you and the history and the legacy as Disney is presenting it to you? Not for twice the money. And I I think that ultimately it doesn't really matter. There are those who are reputable that are well-researched that do have their own companies. And I think that eventually Disney will work out a deal, work out an agreement with some of them. The fact that these people were getting picked out of a crowd means Disney had their eye on you. They knew who you were. Yeah. They knew when you were coming. They were waiting for you. They were waiting for you because... To have a sheriff there, they were waiting. With the the trespass in hand, they knew you were coming, which also questions, are they paying attention to the reservation system? Mm. Just saying. Um, But I think that this is a good opportunity to say, this is a risk that you run booking certain things with third parties because now you have people that had 
their entire vacation based around a tour that they are now not going to get. And there are people that have entire vacations booked with people who did all of their planning for them, spent a lot of money to do so, and now you wonder how that affects the guests that are supposed to be coming down when they book with the third parties, and I think that this is a good time to have a conversation about this is the difference between a travel agent that doesn't charge you more and a planning service that upsells you. You're absolutely right, because this is part of a bigger conversation, and I'm very glad that you phrased it in that exact way, because when I first started out, I I started as a Disney travel agent five years ago, and they did not want us to use the word travel agent. They always, in any, you know, material that we got, in any training that we got, it was always you're a travel planner because the idea was that they wanted to present it in such a way that we are assisting you with your vacation. We're not going to commandeer it. We're not going to tell you how to spend your time. We are here to help you. And they always drove home travel planner, travel planner, don't use the A word. Now, because so many companies have popped up where they're not going through the Disney system, they are not getting an IATA number or a CLIA number, which is how you do set up your partnership with Disney. They're just posing it as, I know a lot about Disney. I'm going to go in the system. I'm going to book your reservation for you. And I'm going to charge for my time on top of it. It has given travel agents such a bad name because now everybody thinks that we're going to upsell and they are afraid that it's going to cost them more money. Disney realized that and now the verbiage is changing back where we are travel agents. They are trying to make that distinction of what is a reputable company versus who is doing this to turn a buck. And I think part of that too also has to do with a lot of influencers coming up over the years and they are also um, either partnering with agencies or they are taking their platform and they have started planning vacations on their own. Disney is really paying attention to all of this kind of stuff now. And I think in the next year, especially, um, we're going to see them, uh, be a little bit more strict with who's able to plan things, um, who they are choosing to acknowledge in the travel agent space. And there was an email sent out recently about partnering with influencers. And there are, there are guidelines now that are in place. So they're going to be a lot that. more careful. Yeah. I, I, oh, for I, sure. I, I think that that's for sure. I think that that's a good way to safeguard, not just the company because it's the company's reputation, but you know, working hand in hand, it, it protects potential guests. Yes. So I think that that's really important. Um, all right, let's talk about Golden Globe nominations. They came out this week. Yesterday, I believe. It's very telling when I look at this list of nominations because now all of these are companies or subsidiaries of Disney, but I don't see a lot of Disney nominated. I see a lot of Hulu. 
I see a lot of Searchlight. Mm-hmm. Poor Things got seven nominations. Best Picture, Best Director. Emma Stone got a nomination for Best Performance by an Actress. Willem Dafoe got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Best Performance by an Actor in Supporting as well, Mark Ruffalo. Best Screenplay, Best Original Score. I personally cannot wait to see this movie. It's been on my radar for quite a while, but it was big in the festival circuit. It's kind of, even though it is Fox Searchlight, it is sort of being touted as this year's indie darling that did well. Um, I think it looks incredible. Um, But yeah, not exactly what you think of when you think the Disney brand. Or the bear. Mm. The bear got five nominations. Best television series, best performance by an actress, uh, A.O. Edebrini, Edebiri. I'm sorry. I've never watched the show. Everybody asked me, do you watch? No, I live the show. (laughs) I live the show five days a week. Why the hell do I want to be entertained by? It's not entertaining. I'm going to get stressed out watching this. When the day comes when I leave food and beverage, then I'll watch it. I will not watch it right now, though I'm sure it's spectacular. Um, Jeremy Allen White got a nomination, as did uh, Ebon Moss Bachrek. Sorry if I'm butchering your names. Both of them nominated Best Supporting Actor and then Abby Elliott got a Best Supporting Actress. So that one with five nominations and then five for Only Murderers in the Building. So again, it, it's Hulu, it's Fox, it's 20th Century. You know, it's it's not a lot of Disney so far. Right. Fargo, FX. Again, Disney owns it because they own FX. Three nominations there. Abbott Elementary got two nominations. This I'll give as a stereotypical Disney because it's ABC and obviously they've owned that for a considerable amount of time. All of Us Strangers, Box Searchlight, Elemental got one nomination for Best Motion Picture Animated. So that was one. The Great, that's a Hulu original. That's another television series, one nomination. Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't... I don't know how this is. This doesn't seem like a real category, by the way. Guardians Volume 3 got nominated for Cinematic and Box Office Achievement. I don't even know what that means. It sounds made up. Yeah, I mean, we know that it was the highest grossing film in its opening weekend. Um but especially in a year where so many films got pushed back, is that really an achievement? It sounds like a participation trophy. Exactly. And I mean, the Golden Globes are are different because it does encompass TV. Like once we get to the Academy Awards, you're you're weeding out a lot of these categories uh, just by virtue of you're not looking at television. Um, but Disney's going to have even less nominations then because you don't have TV in the pool, which is also very telling of where they are right now. Strike aside. And Wish got nominated for Best Motion Picture Animated. So Wish gets one, Guardians gets one, Elemental gets one, Abbott gets two. But no uh, Little Mermaid, no, I mean, Haunted Mansion, did we really expect that? I'm sorry, but I'm surprised that um, Little Mermaid's not getting more attention. But my point is, of the 27 nominations... Of the ones that you kind of consider Disney, 
it's only five. Yeah. It's a lot of Fox. It's a lot of Searchlight. It's a lot of FX. It's a lot of Hulu. And I think that the big conversation here is this is a reflection. You're holding up the mirror to what Bob Iger talked about when he said we need to focus on storytelling, not message sending. I can't believe that in 2023, in the year that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company, this is only dawning on them now. It's so unbelievable to me that this company with the... We have an entire podcast that takes up an awful lot amount of our time dedicated to these films because of how timeless most of them are, because of the storytelling, because of the creativity. And I think that these nominations are showing you that that is the exact problem with a lot of the way that they are developing film and television right now. We're going to put a pin in what Bob Iger said, because that is a conversation for a dockside chat, which That's is going to be coming soon. fuel fueled yes. conversation. But I think it holds up a mirror, not just to the Disney company, but to the state of Hollywood in general, that, you need to focus on storytelling, not content. That's another big issue. Yes. Well, we are interested in knowing what you have to say about this week's Disney news. You can let us know on X Instagram and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, be sure to follow us on all of that social media, X, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, threads at Monoreal Radio, and for links to everything related to the show, it's going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week everyone on behalf of monoreal radio we'd like to thank you for joining us we'll see you at the movies the stuff dreams are made of